Welcome to a new episode of Von Tobel Now. My name is Andrew Crook, your host. In this session, we are taking a truly global approach to providing a fresh perspective on key investment themes, focusing on emerging market sovereign debt across markets as geographically spread as Argentina, Lebanon, Zambia, and more. While EMs are broadly offering attractive yields at the moment, many of these countries experienced heightened levels of credit stress as COVID inevitably put pressure on public finances. In the investment grade space, this led temporarily to spread widening, while for high yield debt, spreads are still abnormally high, which suggests that non-emerging market dedicated investors are still potentially wary of sovereign distress or defaults. So against this backdrop, we want to explore recent and ongoing cases of EM sovereign debt restructurings. We'd like to understand the implications specifically for investors' portfolios and how these experiences should guide investment decisions going forward. To provide relevant insights and answer your questions on this really timely topic of EM sovereign debt restructurings, I'm delighted to welcome two speakers to today's podcast. Carlos de Sousa, who's an EM debt strategist and portfolio manager of Ontobel Asset Management, and our guest speaker, Thomas Laya, of counsel at Oric Heritage and Sutcliffe in Washington, D.C. Thanks to you both for joining us. Hi, Andrew. This is Carlos. Thank you for hosting this. And thanks for me. It's a pleasure to join both you, Andrew, and, and Carlos on today's podcast. Carlos, I'll start with you. You're an economist by training. And now, within your current role, you help shape asset allocation decisions. And from what I understand, you also have a, a close connection to a lot of the countries that we're going to cover today, being from Venezuela. So with that context, how would you describe what a sovereign debt default and restructuring is? What are the key issues investors need to be aware of? That's right. So, so first, let's clarify what a restructuring is and what a default is. So I would define a restructuring as a situation in which the bond contracts of a sovereign are exchanged generally in a coercive way by a new contract or a new bond that has different financial terms. And these financial terms are usually worse for the investors and usually combine some of the following, having longer maturities or lower coupons, or a lower principal, which implies having a principal haircut. So it can be either of the three, or a combination of the three, or two out of three. It, it doesn't matter. All of this would constitute debt restructuring. And very importantly, a debt restructuring is, by definition, at least as per rating agencies, it is an event of default. So one important definition is when a sovereign defaults, it doesn't mean that the investor is going to get zero in return. It generally means that there will be a restructuring at some point in the very short term or sometimes after a while. Thank you. Thomas, moving to you. You're a recognized legal and policy expert in this topic specifically. And having worked at the IMF, obviously, you've been very close to the action over many years. So from your point of view, What's driving discussions now around EM sovereign debt restructuring? Is it all as a result of COVID? So COVID is definitely part of the discussion, particularly for the countries whose economies suffered um, as a result of the lockdowns. And perhaps they had limited space to adequately engage in countervailing fiscal measures. And they may also now need financing for additional social and health spending. 
But I'd say COVID is not the only factor by any means. So we see some countries such as Argentina and Ecuador that have recently concluded debt restructurings or Zambia, whose debt restructuring is pending. And clearly with those countries, they had pre-existing economic conditions that were exacerbated by the effects of COVID. But understandably, we see that the international initiatives are focused particularly on the low-income countries in this sector. These initiatives include the Debt Service Suspension Initiative that provides for forbearance of debt service during a limited period and with commitments to use the savings on social and health spending. Notably, I would emphasize the DSSI just deals with liquidity relief in contrast to the so-called Common Framework, which has also been established to principally coordinate the response of the government sector in addressing unsustainable debt situations among these low-income countries. Finally, I would say that as a result of the COVID pandemic, there's been some new thinking in some senses about not wasting the crisis, if you like, in the sense that we should take the opportunity to rethink and to build forward better. So we see this in the sovereign debt restructuring discussions in terms of ESG considerations coming into play and in calls for innovation, for tools for the government sector to positively crowd in private sector participation, for example, through credit enhancements, rather than just trying to cram down private creditors in calls for debt relief. Thank you. Actually, Thomas, just to quickly clarify for our listeners, obviously we're talking about AEM sovereign debt restructurings. Um, In what ways do these differ from corporate debt restructurings in emerging markets? Corporate debt restructuring takes place within or in the shadow of corporate insolvency law. That's the term we practitioners use in in that these out-of-court workouts take place in the shadow of corporate insolvency frameworks. In contrast, though, there's no sovereign bankruptcy law, although the IMF had in the early 2000s proposed to create such a framework through an amendment of the IMF treaty, that that proposal failed to gain the necessary support. But the IMF remains a critical player in sovereign debt restructurings. In particular, the IMS assessment that a country's public debt is unsustainable or that the country needs additional liquidity is an important factor in anchoring sovereign debt restructuring negotiations. So essentially, the legal and institutional frameworks for sovereign debt restructuring are quite different from the corporate context. Thomas and Andrew, before we move forward, I wanted to clarify a quick comment following on Thomas on the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative from the G20. Just to clarify that this only affects public debt that is owned to bilateral creditors, and, and it doesn't affect in any way debt that is owed to private creditors. And then the other topic, which is the common framework, still untested, but will soon be tested by countries like Ethiopia uh, chat in, in Zambia, that one is likely to affect private creditors as well, although it's not 100% necessarily so. It will be on a case-by-case basis. That's a good clarification. Um, we could even drill down a little bit further. So the, the, the DSSI is focused on the official bilateral creditors, but that there was an expectation or a desire that the private creditors will participate on a voluntary basis. Um, Many have complained that the private creditors have not participated, but in in my view, they actually have. They have been engaged in forbearing their claims, and also they've been providing additional liquidity to a a number of these countries that have market access. And so in a sense of assisting liquidity, I I would argue the private creditors have actually participated in, in the objective of the DSSI. 
That's a very good point. As a private creditor myself, uh, representing private creditors in a way, I would say it was a bit not very understandable to us how the G20 wanted private creditors to participate in providing that relief in a voluntary way. And the only voluntary way we do that, usually from a market perspective, is not through debt restructurings. Those are not usually voluntary operations from the creditor perspective, but through liability management operations and through simply buying new issuance of countries that have market access because they have good fundamentals. Just because of some may not be familiar with liability management operation is, is an operation in which basically there is a bond exchange, there is a, and the, the sovereign issues a new bond um, to creditors that tender an old bond that typically has a shorter maturity. But investors don't incur in any losses whatsoever in these operations. They're entirely voluntary. And it just improves the maturity profile of the country. And again, it, it doesn't in any way affect investors' returns. Carlos, on that point, investors inevitably need to understand the faults and their implications. So a couple of questions around that. How frequently do they typically occur? And is there any average recovery value for EM sovereign debt restructurings or do investors get nothing in return? Yeah, these are very important questions. These are these are key questions. Using a database from a credit rating agency, in this case from Moody's, which goes back to 1983, the average default rate per year of B-rated sovereigns, which is a highly speculative rating for sovereigns, on average, 2.4% of sovereigns default per year. And among triple C rated sovereigns, which are at high risk of default by definition of the rating agencies, about 11% of sovereigns are defaulting per year of these triple C rated sovereigns. So in total, that would mean about two sovereigns defaulting per year on average, historically. Of course, some years there are zero defaults because the global economy is doing well and no one is in distress and, and there are zero defaults. And some years like last year with the COVID crisis, there were six defaults, which is quite a, a high number of defaults when we're talking about sovereigns. And it was an exceptional crisis, so that's understandable. And then regarding the recovery value. So again, historically, going back to the 80s, the average recovery value has been about 53 cents on the dollar, but that has a huge variation. I mean, for example, in the restructuring of Ukraine in 2015, the recovery value was 80, which is relatively high, and Republic of Congo in 2017 was 81. In other cases, for example, Lebanon, which defaulted last year, but hasn't restructured yet, the current bond prices are around 17 cents on the dollar because the Lebanese economy is in such a bad shape that the expected recovery, it's very, very low. So the current price of 17 is a reflection of what on average investors expect uh, the recovery to be. Now, the only case that I can think of where the recovery has been zero was the default in 1986 of Cuba to the London Club, and that has not yet been restructured, although it could be. It could, the recovery value doesn't have to be zero. And then 
potentially, who knows, maybe Venezuela, who defaulted in 2017 and has not restructured yet because U.S. financial sanctions prohibit a bond exchange. So that restructuring has not occurred. It doesn't mean that the recovery will be zero. I think it will be positive, but it's been postponed for a very, very long time, which ultimately weighs on the returns of investors. Thanks that, Carlos. Again, staying with you, and then perhaps, Thomas, you'd be kind enough to share your thoughts. Thinking about the impact of COVID, and we look at most recent restructurings, how many sovereign defaults have occurred over the last 18 months or so? Since the beginning of COVID, we've had six defaults. It's been first uh, Lebanon, Argentina, Ecuador, Zambia, Belize, and Suriname. And and I think we, we can have a, an interesting discussion of whether some of these defaults have been because of COVID or not. Some of the most evident ones are perhaps Lebanon, which defaulted actually before the COVID crisis began. So it's evidently not because of COVID. Argentina did default after the crisis had begun, but Argentina, according to President Fernandez, who at the time in 2018 was a presidential candidate, he said at the time that Argentina was already in virtual default. So Argentina defaulted because of the multiple currency crisis that it experienced in 2018 and getting over indebted during the Macri government leading to this currency crisis in 2018. So really the cause was evidently not COVID. And I would argue Suriname is similarly caused by macroeconomic mismanagement of the previous government. I think in the other cases, Ecuador, Zambia, Belize, COVID did play a role. I would like to know your perspective as well, Thomas, and then I can give my opinion of those other three sovereigns. Sure. Perhaps I'll focus on on three of the examples you gave. So on Argentina, I I want to make perhaps a more forward-looking point, just to add that, at least in my view, the debt is still not sustainable, notwithstanding the very deep restructuring of the debt owed to the private creditors. Um, Argentina still needs to engage in durable economic reforms, including orienting the growth of the economy to exports. And it needs a new IMF program, which would monitor those reforms while rescheduling the payments Argentina owes to the IMF. So that there's still some work, at least in my view, to be done on Argentina. Suriname is an interesting case, which I, I work on. So as you notice, Suriname defaulted on its international sovereign bonds. But it's an unusual situation because while Suriname needs some liquidity in the medium term, but the country has very bright future prospects and would have ample payment capacity in a few years' time due to the significant offshore oil and gas projects that are in train. So that, that's an unusual case. The other case I'd mentioned, perhaps, is Belize. This is a default situation, not for the first time in recent history. However, Belize and the bondholders did reach an agreement on a restructuring involving a cash buyback. And that's a very unusual structure for a sovereign bond restructuring. But the structure essentially allowed the bondholders to exit the credit at a premium to the prevailing market price of the bond. So it it was a a relatively good outcome for some of those bondholders. Belize's restructuring also involved a novel aspect involving funding and commitments on marine conservation. And this type of ESG component could become more prevalent in future sovereign debt restructurings. 
unfortunately, we probably at a time where we should wrap up. And I just want to mention to listeners that this is a clearly a vast topic and there's a lot of expertise um, that Thomas and Carlos bring to this. So we've done a fabulous job of condensing it all into this relatively short time frame. But thinking about what action investors should take now in terms of how they assess emerging market sovereign debt going forward. Carlos, perhaps you can give a view and then Thomas to follow on what they can do against the backdrop of everything you've just described. For me, one of the most relevant things is not being afraid of defaults, not trying to fully avoid defaults. And why so? Because I mentioned before, the historical recovery value is about 53 cents on the dollar, but that assumes that you have bought the bonds for 100, and therefore you have lost in net present value some 47 cents. However, for active investors like ourselves, that is almost always not the case. And here I would like to quote a research piece by the IMF called Long-Term Returns in Distressed Bonds, How Did Investors Fare? And in that case, they take a sample of 15 years on a bond-by-bond basis, and they select emerging market crises that resulted in restructurings, either via reprofiling or via haircuts. And the reality is that the so-called distress investors who buy the bonds once these bonds are in distress, that is when the yield is above 10 percentage points on top of the of the risk-free rate, so more than 10% yield. Those investors actually, they do not lose money even if they were to buy all of the distressed debt uh, in this period. And some of it will be restructured and some of it won't be restructured. On average, they make some 17% annualized returns. So going into distress is generally a profitable activity. That said, we're not specialized distress investors, which would be more of a hedge fund kind. We're more of what is called an unconstrained investor, as opposed to a constrained investor that typically tries to avoid defaults. We sometimes do invest into a country that is likely to go into default because, for example, the prices are much lower than the estimated recovery value. And going back to to the Belize case that Thomas uh, mentioned earlier, in which the bonds will be hopefully successfully repurchased in the next few weeks for about 55 cents on the dollar. So that recovery value is, is about 55 cents. But until a couple of months ago, those bonds, or until about one month ago, those bonds were trading at 40 cents on the dollar, which means if you bought these bonds this year, you would be making pretty nice profits by holding through the restructuring. So my advice to investors is do not try to just avoid defaults at all costs. Think about what your recovery value would be and what the price of the bonds is at the moment. Thanks, Carlos. So I'll be very brief. I'll just emphasize that although sovereign debt restructuring is somewhat esoteric, it's not rocket science. And you can get input from experienced advisors who understand the legal, the policy, and the economic context. And such advice can facilitate reasonable resolutions that are satisfactory to investors and sometimes also to debtors. So I I hope we've offered some useful insight in that regard today. Absolutely. Thank you. And both of you, thanks for your thought-provoking comments and very practical insights. I hope all our listeners have a clearer view now of the EM sovereign debt landscape and have found this as interesting as I have. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. 
Um, there are a lot of materials available on this topic on the Von Tobel website and more will follow. And if you'd like to learn more, please follow us on LinkedIn to get relevant updates. We look forward to bringing you more podcasts on new topics soon. So for now, thank you and goodbye. This recording is for information purposes only, and nothing contained in this recording should constitute a solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any investment instruments, to affect any transactions, or to conclude any legal act of any kind whatsoever, except as permitted under applicable copyright laws. None of this information may be reproduced, adapted, uploaded to a third party, linked to, framed, performed in public, distributed, or transmitted in any form by any process without the specific written consent of Vontabel. To the maximum extent permitted by law, Vontabel will not be liable in any way for any loss or damage suffered by you through the use or access to this information, or Vontabel's failure to provide this information. Our liability for negligence, breach of contract, or contravention of any law as a result of our failure to provide this information, or any part of it, or for any problems with this information, which could not be lawfully excluded, is limited at our option and to the maximum extent permitted by law to resupply this information or any part of it to you, or to pay for the resupply of this information or any part of it to you. Keep in mind that past performance is not a reliable indicator of current or future performance, and forecasts are inherently limited and should not be relied upon as an indicator of future performance. Today's guest speaker is not an employee or representative of Von Tobel. The views expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of Von Tobel.